Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this is June and part of the continuation of the Bleeding Love Takeover. Bleeding Love is a new podcast, radio play musical, and you can find it at bpn.fm slash bleeding love or everywhere you find podcasts. Basically, wherever you're listening to me right now, just search for Bleeding Love and you'll find it. It's incredible. It's amazing. And it stars some incredible people. Of course, Tony Vincent included, who is the guest of this podcast. His love for drumming and music led him down a very strange and unknown path to be an amazing singer coming out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. The only other thing I knew came out of Albuquerque was Breaking Bad. You know, <laughs> not really, but it was set there. Um, his love for love for drumming led him to where he is now as an incredible singer, gave him his Broadway, his Broadway career. And his passion for good music and for working with other passionate people just, it speaks for itself. I mean, we get into it and and we go off on so many tangents. You've heard me say it before on this podcast. Like, I, I let the conversation go wherever it wants to go. And we went somewhere. It's been, <laughs> it was such a fun conversation to talk about. Uh, he was doing theater for a while, uh, Broadway specifically. And then he's got this wonderful story about how The Voice came along, you know, the show on TV, the reality show. And he decided, okay, I'm just going to go do The Voice. And it gave him kind of this leeway back into creating his own art and becoming great friends with C. Lo Green that it helped him out later on in life. Oh man, the story, he is just truly passionate. As I said, one other thing I want to mention is strangely, oh, maybe this isn't strange for people in his shoes, but his love for the Beatles brought him into a love for heavy metal. So I will let him explain that because he explains it a lot better than I do. But before we get into it, as always, please visit me online at thetheaterpodcast.com. Please show your support for the podcast. Help me keep going in this weird time at thetheaterpodcast.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Tony Vincent. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Here you go. One, two, three... My guest today is widely known for his appearance on the second season of NBC's The Voice, but he is a nationally renowned recording artist, 
well before that. He made his Broadway debut in 1998 as Roger in Rent before going on to roles such as Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar and performed on London's West End in Queen's musical We Will Rock You. He has also actually performed Bohemian Rhapsody with Queen for the band's 2002 appearance at Queen Elizabeth's 50th anniversary celebration as Monarch. He originated the role of St. Jimmy in the Tony Award-winning American Idiot and most recently was seen on Broadway in 2018 for Rocktopia and now stars as the rebel punk puppy as <laughs> in the <laughs> podcast Bleeding Love. Tony Vincent, welcome to the theater podcast. Great to be here. How are you? I'm good. That was a mouthful of a bio. <laughs> I, you did great. I, it was awesome. I've been I've been like binging all of your old like YouTube clips. Oh no. Uh, yeah, I mean I'm, like I'm sorry. No, I I am so enthralled like as as someone who can at best call himself like a crooning baritone. Uh I've always been extremely envious of of people with like that rock tenor voice and mm. and you are you are just no exception like it, i mean the shows are the most energetic at karaoke you get the most attention like you can sing <laughs> you sing all the cool stuff right and, and so take me back to to the beginning i guess of of Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's where you were. That's where you grew up. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Yeah. I, the, the thriving theater hotbed of Albuquerque. <laughs> and Breaking Bad. <laughs> and, well, that uh, I, isn't that ridiculous TV? So good. I love it. I oh love my it. gosh! So riveting. So so infectious. Um, I grew up there, and both of my grandmothers actually were singers. My grandmother on my mother's side was kind of uh, very country influenced, very old school, um, pre John and Cash, um, kind of old school. And my father's mom was a big band singer. And so the musical talent kind of came through both sides in a way, although it sort of skipped my mother. My father sort of had a little bit, but what he did have was a pretty cool taste of music. And he had a pretty great record, record collection when I was growing up. And I fell upon the Beatles catalog at four years old. And it was so gripping. I mean, as, as gripping as music could be at four years old, but, but I knew whatever I was hearing coming out of that really cheap radio shack, realistic, you know, stereo that this is what I want to be a part of. Now I didn't know what that meant obviously at the time, but I knew that drums were very impactful. I knew that I wanted to be a drummer off of listening to Ringo. It just, Felt right. Now I was singing to the radio and that sort of thing ever since I was that I can remember, you know. Um, but I wanted to be a drummer, and so when I was seven, I started studying drums. I saved up some money of doing chores and <laughs> and bought a really inexpensive drum kit. But that just sort of sent me on this journey of like wherever I could perform, I would, and so that meant that battle of the bands, choir, you know. School choir, church choir, civic light opera. It didn't matter what it was. It was 
just anything that I could do to be a better communicator or have an opportunity to perform, I utilized it. Because to me, I was so young, I didn't have any preconceived notions about what was cool and what wasn't. I mean, because my music tastes at that time, yeah, obviously it was influenced, at least the domino tipped when I was listening to Beatles and that sort of thing. But I really got into to heavy metal actually when I was really really young and like really yeah like from a drumming aspect or or what? from a, from a lot of things I mean like I thought Van Halen was it <laughs> I really did I mean I thought Alex Van Halen was a really unique drummer um, I mean don't get me wrong I mean Eddie was and still is a ridiculous guitar player but. I just really gravitated towards heavy metal music. I mean, and I you think heavy metal, now you think like Tool and that sort of thing. But, you know, that was pretty, you know, aggressive back then with David Lee Roth. And, um, but then a friend came over when I was 12 years old and brought a synthesizer over to my house. And I was blown away. I could not wrap my head around knobs and buttons and sounds that were sort of out of, you know, the spectrum of, reality and it sort of sent me on this journey of moving from playing drums and singing to programming synthesizers and singing so this was obviously the 80s if it was all this was the this was the 80s yeah 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 then i took a huge turn into like english pop so like duran duran and the cure and uh, Alphaville, even though it's a German band, but like really even obscure stuff too that most Americans don't know. But that's what moved me. I thought that like whatever was coming over from England, and it, again, it goes, it always goes back to the Beatles. Something was, ha- something happened when people would do music that resonated with me, that tended to be melancholy and dark and ominous. And that's it to me that w- that was like tangible music that I could feel and relate to, and that sort of thing. It's interesting that I'm you know, sort of focused on characters that are this dark, melancholy, <laughs> brooding uh, sort of man unto it himself, you know, because these guys like a Judas or a St. Jimmy, they're their own guy. They're not dependent on another relationship or anything else, you know? They do kind of what they do. And it's it's ironic that as much as I've always wanted to be in a band, I've never had patience with a band. <laughs> because either the drummer or guitar player show up 35 minutes late and somebody isn't practicing. And I'm, I, you know, it's like lifting a, a huge, you know, bag of stones up a real steep hill. And I'm just like, this is it. This is just no fun. And so I've always been a solo artist, you know, as a recording artist with EMI or with Sony. It has just been easier that way. That's a lot. Well, is, that, is that an okay sort of setup for what we're doing? Oh, absolutely! Uh, there's so much that you that you talked about that I want to touch on. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting, interesting to me that how you like I, I know you, um, I know you as a voiceover artist and as this 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 rock tenor, and I had no clue about the drumming and the synth yeah. is the synth is all new to me. And like, and I was saying uh, before we started recording that. Or maybe it was in the recording. I can't even remember now that I was, you know, going down the rabbit hole of of Tony Vincent videos on YouTube, mm. and it's all it's all singing stuff. Like you put yourself out there now as sure. a singer, yeah. And, and so, like, at what point? I guess how old were you when you really realized you're like, oh man, like the singing thing is is kind of like my ticket right now mm. because 
people try to emulate like the Bon Jovis and yeah. and the Van Halens and and these these voices that you've just been, you know, that you hear all over karaoke's, right? Sure. And they blow their voice out. Yeah. In one song. Absolutely. And so it, how do you how did you go there? How did you figure out you're like, oh, I can sing like this and it doesn't hurt me eight well, times a week? That's a great question. Uh, I to sort of start off at the the top of that question is when did I know that I wanted to sing? It was while I was drumming at six, seven years old. I knew that I wanted to be a singer. I mean, I wanted to be the front man, but I also I wanted to be a musician too. I felt that that it connected me with the material. And then when I started playing with synthesizers, my sister was a, a classical pianist. And so we had a grand piano in our house. And so at some point during 7 to 11, 12 years old, I sort of started playing along with records just by ear um, because I wanted to start writing music. And it's hard to write melody on a drum kit. You know, <laughs> it doesn't work so well. <laughs> no, not so much. Uh, <laughs> um, but... I always knew that I would probably be the front man. It just felt comfortable. Um, not because I wanted to necessarily dominate the, <laughs> the stage or the landscape, but it just felt like I'm one with this song and I am a singer, you know? And I don't know, the, I don't know how to answer that question of like, how did you not blow your voice out? Um, but I knew it... <laughs> That's a hard question to answer because I don't try to sing like anybody else. I think that's probably the smart way about approaching a song is that I, huh. I don't try to sound like David Lee Roth or Bon Jovi or anybody else. I just, I've been obviously influenced by rock vocalists, but I would never try to emulate what somebody else does. I find that so uninspiring and inauthentic and um i don't know i don't know to i don't know how to answer that question exactly but i know that i only know how to sing like me. i'll tell you something i've been doing the over the last um almost three years i've been doing this symphonic tour of david bowie music um the company's based out of virginia beach it's called windborne music and they have a catalog of like 10 different shows that they do but i i take control of their bowie show and their tom petty show and a lot of the time I get, you know, asked, you know, if, if I emulate what, what Bowie does. But I'll tell you one thing that has been so freeing is that as enjoyable as it is to sing some of the most iconic rock and pop songs that have ever been written. And I, I don't know if there's a single artist that has influenced me more than, than David Bowie. Um, but I never try to emulate what he does. But because I've listened to so much English music in my lifetime, I have English isms that naturally happen because I hear things like an like an English person. I guess it's just music that still moves me. I mean, I'm still referencing English bands all the time, even if I'm sitting in a production seat working with another artist or I'm writing music. I hear Britpop. It's just what I hear. Guitar-driven, whether it's Oasis or a band called Manson or still The Cure or still Depeche Mode or Duran Duran. I mean, those really hooky, melancholy, rhythmically driven songs still move the core of me. And for some reason, I can kind of, I can still do that while doing rock 
theater. I don't know how to balance it or how to articulate it exactly, but it just, I don't know. It's, it's kind of what I do. And I think that's what has been a real fortunate thing for me because I don't try to do what somebody else does. Like I have so much respect for so many vocalists in the theater community, but I would never try to do what they do because I don't know. I just try to see it from an audience perspective and I don't want to go and see somebody replicating what somebody has done before. Right. To me, that is boring. So, so silly. And, and you're selling yourself short. And I, and I, I'm always amazed at, at casting directors who try to replicate like the original companies, this, the original company. And I get it, don't get me wrong, because you want that show to have some sort of continuity. And there, and I'll, I've been a part of, origin, you know, part of original companies before, and there is something special that can never be replicated. I don't care how good of a singer you are or how good of an actor you are in the future. There's something that when you're with that group of people and you're doing it for the first time and you're creating something that has never been done before, it's, it cannot be compared to anything else. But like Rent, you know, and, and I was part of the first national tour and then wound up going to Broadway with it. It would have been the, I would be the biggest fool to try to emulate what Adam Pascal did because there is only one Adam doing Rent. I mean, doing Roger in Rent. There, there's just one. And there should only be just one. So, I mean, I'm, I, I kind of wave the flag. This is something that I'm pretty impassioned about because I just think people need to stop replicating and start doing what they do originally. And this is, this is also a problem that I think most musical theater singers fall into. If they're not creators in their own right, whether they're, and I mean, whether they're a musician and they play an instrument, or they actually are a poet, or ho however they create content on their own, whether it's musical or not, they're always playing a role that somebody else has designed. So they never can figure out what their own thing is because they're just trying to do what someone else is telling them to do. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I've, I have talked with so many introverts about this exact same thing because they have social anxiety. They have mm -hmm. issues just being in their own skin. Yeah. And the time when they are most comfortable is when they are being somebody else. Uh, I, listen, I get it. I have been through years of therapy and eating disorders and substance abuse. I get the therapy and wanting to be in someone else's shell because that's safe and it's not the true thing that resonates inside because that i mean when you're really giving of your individual self that is a scary vulnerable place that is intimidating at best and everything that's dark and scary you know the trajectory continues to go on and and get deeper but i i understand however <laughs> <laughs> All that being said, it's still not real. There are very few actors, unless they're like, you know, directors and or they're writers simultaneously with being actors. There's something that I think everybody can see that's different about those people. And when I think one of the things that made um, American Idiot so special was that so many of us in that original cast were musicians. 
And it connected us with the music in a deeper way than just, oh, he's a great singer. Boy, she's a great actor, isn't she? Well, okay, but does it move somebody? I'd rather have somebody that was an average actor that was so real because those are the things, those are the individuals that are going to move an audience member. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you look at, at James, let's just take James Taylor as an artist, for example. Funny enough, I've, I haven't seen another artist more than James Taylor. And as I'm talking about heavy metal and, and Brit pop, right? <laughs> that being said, I saw him one time and I was so taken aback by, well, first of all, he's a much deeper guitar player than I had ever anticipated seeing. But he's such an amazing communicator on stage. And you'd never think, James, what an amazing, brilliant vocalist. But his storytelling is so stinking compelling. As an audience member, you are taken to a different place because he is so real. That that term real is thrown around in theater circles so often, and it makes me kind of want to vomit a little bit in my throat. But there's something that pulls us in as an audience member when someone is utterly believable. And I think that the majority of us, even if we can't put our finger on what makes that performance special, you know when it's legit and you know when someone is trying to act it. Does that make sense? Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's in acting, it's acting versus being. Yeah. It's, you, are, you either are happy or sad or you're acting like you're happy or sad. And Correct. So yeah, totally. It, it's I totally get that. I totally understand that. And I can I agree with you. I I would much rather watch someone who is presenting it with, you know, if 0 to 100%, 100% is the most perfect voice in the world. I'd much rather watch a 60 to 70% perfect voice person who is just kicking ass at the presentation and Absolutely. believes it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Because totally. you're going to go away. I guarantee it. If you watch somebody who does that kind of performance, it's like, well, vocally they're good, but their performance is riveting. You will leave the theater talking about the performance and that individual. If you leave the theater seeing somebody that just nails it vocally but doesn't move you emotionally, you will just go, she was a good singer, wasn't she? And that is it. And then you're off to drinks with your friends. Oh, she was good. <laughs> he was so good. Oh, that relationship was really, really sweet, wasn't it? Yeah. Do you remember what song it was? No. Do you remember what their name was? No. Let's go have a beverage. I mean, that's just, uh, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, then, it becomes, then it becomes pithy. It becomes pithy entertainment. Yeah, I walk away from things and, and I look at the chemistry between people on stage. Like, if, mm-hmm. I can tell if you, if, you, if you really enjoy the person you're with, yeah. It show it shows on stage and if you don't then it's yeah it's not not believable and it affects everything downstream. Absolutely. Oh Absolutely. yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. totally. Um, yeah. So g- getting back to you. Sure. The <laughs> <laughs> um, you went to Belmont University. I did. Which is where you recorded your first single Love Falling Down and it was number 1 on the hometown station. Yes it was. And, and then released nationally May 1993. Uh, and it appeared Gosh, appeared for the week on the national CCM radio wow. charts. Uh, and during, like, at college, you had six number one songs on Billboard's radio charts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, was college for you, like, were, were you doing it because you had to, or did you actually get, like... Uh, I went... 
Did I you went, learn from college or were you doing, going there because, you know, you were like, I got to go to college. This is what I'm supposed to do. The latter, I went to college because this is what I'm supposed to do, but they had a recording studio and this is where I'm going to spend my time. Fair. And so you were, yes, you were recording. I, I you were never, recording your own stuff. I was recording my own stuff. I was, I yeah. never anticipated going to the South. I was headed to either NYU or Pepperdine. That's, those were kind of my schools. It was either close to LA or New York. And this is still where New York was still like a thriving music city. And, uh, and literally the semester of my senior year, right before graduating, I heard about the school called Belmont and they had a music business program. So it, it, I mean, the curriculum was copyright law and music publishing and finance and accounting and management and everything that goes on behind the artist. And I couldn't find another criteria or, or curriculum in any other university in the States that did that exact thing. So I was like, I never wanted to go to Nashville. It was too country influenced. It was too Southern. It did not tick the box off because I couldn't get to London. I didn't know how to do that at that point in my my young career, um, or at least my educational career. Um, and New York was closer to London. So that's why New York was an option. It wasn't because of theater. It's, it was because of rock and roll. And I figured that even though I want to be the, the front guy or the artist, I want to be a person who can minimize the amount of times I get screwed over <laughs> in this industry by, wow. by studying all of the things that go on behind an artist because most artists don't get it. They don't know that. So well, I want, you know what I'm well, saying? Most actors, most actors don't get that. The, the, the parallel that I've drawn so many times talking to people is uh, that I've performed with these people over my past that have amazing beautiful voices. Mm -hmm. And actually what you were talking about earlier, they have great voices, 100%, 90% perfect voice. Yeah. Can't act their way out of a paper bag. Right. But they also don't realize that they are their own product. They are their they are their own manager and marketer and and I, everything. I will tell you this though. I I mean you'd hit it on the on the head. For some reason that that thing has not translated into the world of theater for some reason. And I don't understand it. But I sort of had a little bit of an advantage because my father owned an ad agency when I was growing up. And so, you know, around the dinner table, we're talking about like ad campaigns and whether it was print in newspapers or magazines or TV or radio, it was all, I mean, it, that was just my world because that was my father's world. And, and it, that, that's the stuff I heard. So branding, I got before it became this sort of catchphrase. Because um, I knew that when I put that EP out in college, that that record cover had to ask a question of, or it had to bra uh, bring the attention of an audience member of what is this? So it had to me, it had to be ambiguous to a certain extent. And so I made it really dark and sort of shadowy and it looked like nothing else in the record stores. And I, I, I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily why it, it, it moved, but it didn't hurt the problem. I mean, the situation, you know what I'm saying? It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Well, yeah, you you have to get people to pick it up and tell their friends about it. I mean, this is yeah, what mid mid nineties, right? So you're yeah, mid-90s, long before yeah. social media, long before oh, yeah. social media, long before before the, before like, the internet, really. Yeah, yeah, before the internet, before anything, right? Like this was still modem days, and so oh, yeah, it was Earthlink dial up, Earthlink dial up, baby. Absolutely, get the. Get the 10, 10 cassette tapes for a dollar. Yeah, you got yeah, it for a dollar, whatever it was. Um, then you said, then you yeah. own your first child. Yeah, I oh, I kept on, I kept on signing up and canceling under different names. So I think I would many just, people yeah. did that. Yeah, that's how they yeah. went out of business. Well, they also, you know, the way that the record deals were structured back then, they had so much product that they weren't responsible that that was not that was recoupable by the artist, but that they didn't, that it didn't cost them anything to put out there. It's it, the way old record deals were structured, although the money was like massive and brilliant, were just horrible for the artist on so many levels. Wow. From product, wow. product breakage that the artist was responsible for, when it never happened, you'd still have a record deal and you'd pay like, you'd be responsible for like 15% packaging failure or whatever the technical term was. I don't remember exactly con- contractually because it's been so many years. But and, and there was like a study done where it was like less than 2% was ever damaged in shipping. But yet you'd still owe a ton of money back to the record company. And it was, you know, just they were just siphoning money off of every angle that they could. With the, like if a semi-truck full of your music was traveling, gotten in an accident and it all just burned to flames, you had to pay for that? Oh, well, it was built into everybody's contract. So even if that never happened, I still would have had to pay 12% or whatever of the packaging fail, failure. You know, CD cracked covers and cassettes that went awry. Oh, yeah. I was, oh, it, was, it was really bad. <laughs> but but you, but uh, Nancy, this is why I went to school for it because I could read a contract and know exactly how I was getting screwed over and going, is it worth it? Is it worth it to do this now? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Because back then, you, I mean, you had to have a major record label in order to, to break the market. And I'm still slightly convinced that you still have to now anyway. Or major distribution. This is a, this is a different topic that is not appropriate probably for this, this parameter. Because you know, we're, we're, we're not even talking about theater yet, are we? We're sort of talking about no, theater. but I'm actually fascinated by all of this because now it's translating into Apple Music and Spotify and all mm-hmm. these other streaming services. Yep. And, and I mean, gosh, to be a record exec, uh, 
I'm I'm picturing a bunch of you know old white guys sitting around a table mm-hmm. and and just you know laughing as they just cash their checks and you know because that's that's the image of record industry that I've got in my head and sure. who knows how accurate that is. Um, but then in terms of how cable companies like Spectrum, Time Warner, all these yeah. companies have just fallen so far behind. As soon as Netflix came out, you've got, you know, these young upstart, agile, super fast moving, spread all over the globe in an instant kind of internet stuff. Whereas the the anyone relying on physical infrastructure is just like left so far behind now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So so I would be, I I totally like would love to chat about this for a second is to how things have changed. I mean, you're sitting for this interview, we're over the internet, you're using your microphone that you use and your wife uses for your voiceovers and your own performances and whatnot. So you're literally able to work and make who knows how much much money just work sitting in your house in quarantine. The answer to that is not much. <laughs> well, but technically speaking, I can I can still I could make a record in my home. I did I did it when I was in New York. I had a really fortunate situation where one of the one of our rooms in my apartment um, was a studio and I made my last EP with a guy in Sweden and we just you know flipped files back and forth and it was great he only spent I think two weeks in New York staying with me in my flat and the rest of the time we were pitching stuff back and forth well even something that, that just came out um Couple a month or two ago, it was the ten year anniversary of Green Day's American Idiot opening on Broadway, right? And you Correct. and you and the original cast did Twenty One Guns, yeah. That was all record recorded entirely in quarantine, like totally. individual individual tracks. Yes, and correct. so this is it was an it's an amazing video. I'll put it in the show notes for this episode. Um, and it's not unusual though because you you look at did you see the six. The Six Queens video, the fan, fan I did not. video. It, they had all the queens from all the casts, including like an ensemble of fans that submitted their own videos. And just, it's, you know, literally hundreds of people that are all singing together on this one video now that's put together over the internet. And, you know, there's power in, there's power in that. There's branding power in that. There's promotional power in that. And then you've got people who literally make a living off of Instagram and YouTube. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they get paid to, you know, thousands of dollars to make one story post or yeah. tens of thousands or whatever it is, depending on how many they've got. And God, you want to talk about like branding and whatnot. We're so far off topic. I don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is this is just fascinating to me, the business side of all of this. And I I don't know why, going back to what you said a second ago, that why theater has not caught up. Theater seems to be the last. The last industry in terms of performing to ever like catch up with the rest of movies and TV and film and yes, music. It is. Um, I think there are a few exceptions to the rule. Um, I think when you have... Th- you know, let's just take Rent. I keep going back to this because I believe that that show single-handedly was the domino that brought young people back into the theater. I think that that Rent logo is so ridiculously iconic. I think they got it on so many different levels. Um, the producers got it. Um, I also think that it was a real fortunate story to happen when it happened. Um, but it was a story that was 
real. It was touching on social issues for the first time in a long time. I mean, I think it was kind of our generation, my generation's West Side Story to a certain extent because they were finally addressing social differences, racial disconnect, um, sexual issues that were never that honest on stage. I mean, there were, there was, you know, innuendos or whatever in the past, but nothing really that showed an authentic love relationship between two men or two women or destructive relationships between two women and two men. Um, and so I, I think that as we talk about branding, the rent logo itself, I mean, there, there are very few there are few shows that spend that much time and maybe they just got lucky. I don't know because I wasn't there when it started. I saw the original company and I was like, I've got to be a part of this show at some point in my career because I was involved. I was touring on a record um, when I first saw it. But I just, I think they grasped the brand of what Rent was as a franchise. And if you look at, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, but you look at 95% of shows that are on Broadway and the image of what that show is. I mean, like, I'll tell you also, Weber is king of it. I mean, you look at Cats, the Cats logo is freaking iconic. <laughs> that, I mean, that's kind of shit. You, that's what you want to represent. You want the thing to talk about the show before you have to articulate it. Those kinds of visuals like are- your album cover. It is. It's your album. It's, it needs to be- that deep and it needs to be that thought of you know as as a weighty issue and i think some people just they they use it they don't treat it as weighty enough they also don't treat the soundtrack as weighty you know i've been a part of great records like american idiot i swear it was such a blessing to be a part of that record because we actually made an album as opposed to going into a studio for 48 hours and try to replicate some version of the show because um, producers don't put enough money aside to actually make a record. It is, it is a, it's a necessary thing that they don't spend time on. They don't spend the finances on. I mean, I bet we spent seven or eight weeks doing American Idiot. We really, oh yeah, we made a, a fucking record. We didn't make it. Wow. Oh yeah. I mean, granted, we were blessed because we had the Green Day infrastructure and we used Chris Dugan as the engineer and we were tracking through ridiculous, fabulous Mike Prees and, you know, singing through $30,000 microphones. And it was a fucking ridiculous, amazing time. I mean, it was really great record making. It wasn't just, let's make a show recording of our talent. It wasn't like that. It was great. It was what should happen at every fucking show. Think I'm passionate about it? Make a damn record, please. <laughs> I so, mean, come on. Or just record the live show and get on with your, your thing. But don't do it halfway. And that's what 95% of Broadway shows do. Anyway. That's That's... What you were talking about earlier about making it real versus just acting like you're doing it. Yes, let's make so, it real. Yeah, no, you're you not guys, making a record. You're just you're hitting record in the studio for just to get somebody to sing on it with a with your band sort of showing up before the show. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're you're making this record while you're performing eight times a week. How real can you really do that in a matter of yeah. 48 hours? 
That means everybody in that cast has to be on point for that very short span of time. It does not work. And uh, anyway. I know. I, I, I totally get that. Which that- brings me back to why I like Bleeding Love so much. Because we made a record. We spent time. How does that snare drum sound? I don't like that mix. Let's fix it. Not let's get it out just to get it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay, let's talk about Bleeding Love. Yeah. Great segue. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> the the uh, a radio play released by um, Broadway Podcast Network now that we recorded the dialogue completely in quarantine. And the the music in the album, though, it's you were part of the demo that was recorded four years ago. Right, right. And, and um, well... So I guess talk to me about the creative process there because I didn't know that. I mean, it, it sounds like you were involved more with the with the music creation than maybe some of the other actors were. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, when I when when Harris invited me to be a part of the project, I mean, we were just the goal was to just get some great songs recorded, whatever that meant. It wasn't, I mean, this, this was a very infant thought. I mean, granted, the show had already had uh, a run overseas. But in my perspective, we were going in to just make a really great sounding record. That's it. And that's, to me, I mean, I'm on board with anybody who has conviction to make something sound great in a studio. I, I, li- I live for great records. I live for it. I live for being a part of it. And I think that's what makes this show also very, very special to me and very unique in general is because it started with that. It started with really, really killer sounding material. Great, great content and songs and sounds and how does that guitar sound and, the, and, and whether or not your audience can articulate it or not, it, that's not what it's about. It's about how it moves the creative person. I mean, and we had musicians who cared about how it sounded sonically. And you can tell, I mean, this thing just sounds really, really good. And so I'm always... Anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just always attracted to people that are that, that passionate about how does it sound? How does this reach our person? You know, it's, it's yeah. very important to me. And I'm, I always am thrilled to work with people that are, you know, that have that perspective. And Arthur went back and, um, the composer, he went back and reworked the songs again before we even released it. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. So it's been like remastered for that and the soundtrack, uh, yeah, we won't call it a cast album because it is, it's a soundtrack. What are we calling it? Anyway, songs from the podcast are are being, what are we able to call it? Yeah, I don't know what we're calling it right now. It's not a cast recording. Maybe it is. Songs on the podcast are coming out soon, so we'll be able to have that to point to. But yeah, the the amount of work and the amount of of care that have that has gone into the creation of this, and Harris Duran, the director and the lyricist, and is also the the audio editor. I listen to it. You know, I love. I'm an audiophile too, and I love. Mm. You know, my big cans on. And I'll like turn the lights down low and just lay in bed and I'll listen to these things. And I, cause I, I'd love to hear all of the little nuances that, uh, that you can put into, to something that you can only, that you can hear so intimately with, with headphones in. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's there's something to be said about recording for that medium versus playing for a concert hall. And oh, absolutely. They're two, two separate, they're two separate things. And that's what I think so much of the time the theater community misses. The production team on shows. They miss, they, they, they think it's one and the same. And I guess if you want to record, like I, I'm repeating myself a bit, but if you want to record a show live, that's great. If you want that feel, that you keep the audience in there, keep the applause in there, keep the feel of the, the air present so that it feels like you're not close mic'd, but that there's, there's, that actors are actually on a stage. Make it feel like that. Or go into a studio and take the time to make it sound great. That's money. That's money, though. Yeah. You have to sit in a studio for sometimes weeks and weeks. With these. Well, you know what? Yes and no. The way, that, the way that equipment has come down in price, nobody says that you have to go rent Electric Lady for three weeks to do a Broadway cast recording. Nobody, is, nobody needs to do that. You do that for, I'd say you should do it for at least five days to get basic tracks. And then you have somebody, you have your vocalists, solo artists, go to somebody's house with, a voice, with, a, with an ISO booth and run Pro Tools off of your laptop and then have somebody properly mix it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a game. I mean, also because theater people usually aren't thinking about the recording mechanism as in like how to actually get it done. They throw a lot of money unnecessarily at renting big studio spaces when they don't need to do that. Anyway. <laughs> I think the best parallel for this is when I travel, I see all of these people with these gigantic like Canon 5D Mark II, Mark III's with this huge telephoto lens and they have it set to automatic. And it, oh, they're so far. Well, I'm a Nikon shooter, but so I, I mean, mean you, it, it, you it comes point, back to like, like, like just. I said you get the point. It's like it's like why spend three thousand dollars or four thousand dollars on a camera and lens yeah. when you're when you're not going to learn how to use it? It's overkill. Absolutely. Just learn how to adjust the settings, and you'll get a much better picture on a point and shoot. Sure. Totally. Absolutely. And it's you know it's all perspective too. I mean, it's just it's like please just. I'll talk you through it. <laughs> Broadway producer X, I'll talk you through the recording process so that you can get a killer record, I promise. I'm just, I love it too much. And I love, frankly, I love theater too much for it to be minimized by average work. Does that make sense? Yes. And that, actually, that brings me to another question that, like, you're currently in Nashville now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So you're in you're in Nashville. This is where you've stayed, and because you're pursuing the recording artist side of life, but you're still so passionate. I was going to ask if you were still passionate about theater, but it's obvious to me that you are. I'm passionate but, about good theater. That's what I'm passionate. About. I'm I'm passionate about not theater for the sake of just being theater. And that's where I, that's where I, I have a problem with that in general though. Like people that are into sports, just to be into sports says like, you know, be passionate about great sports, passionate about great movie making, passionate about great records. That's what I'm, I'm thrilled about. That's why I'm so, I'm so humbled to be on this podcast because 
I, I just, I want to encourage people to just not settle. And if you don't know how to not settle, I mean, because you don't, maybe you don't know the difference. What you think is great is really subpar. Just surround yourself with as much art as you can. And you'll start to see what is really, really good. That isn't an opinion all the time. You know, you look at a Pink Floyd record. Sorry, folks, Dark Side of the Moon kicks ass. It just does. And it ain't just an opinion. It's because... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Thriller is a freaking great record. It's because the songs are great. It's because Quincy got some of the greatest instrumentation down. And Michael delivered, you know, ridiculous vocals. I mean, all of those things. It takes time. Don't do it half-assed. So how do you how do you draw the line? What is your what is your threshold be, be before you decide to give a project a try or latch onto it? I mean, start with bleeding love because you were mm -hmm. part of it originally, and then it, now it comes back in 2020 years later, and we're like, all right, now it's podcast radio play been rewritten. Sure, yeah. I come back to this. That's an, actually an easy question to answer because I so believe in Harris as a director, as a creative, I believe in the material. I think the story is fantastic. I don't think anyone has settled along the way. That's an easy answer. It's an easy project to be involved with because the people involved are so freaking committed. And it's not just like, I'm really endorsing this story right now. It's not that. It's like the shit's so good. The actors are so good. The writing is so believable and honest, it's, it would be foolish to not be a part of because of the team that's around it. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. That has a lot yeah. to do with, with what I get involved with and not. Um, especially if I've worked with the individual or individuals before that, you know, or the reputation that they have might, might encourage me to explore an opportunity. Right. But I'm well, also now, willing to take a risk too. I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to lay it all out and otherwise I'm a no-go. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, if a song right. that I hear is just like really ridiculously dope, there's a great chance that I'm going to jump at, at the opportunity because I love to sing so damn much. So The Voice season two happened in 2012. And, yeah. and uh, so you'd already done a couple Broadway, uh, Broadway shows at that point. And I guess that... Why did I do the voice? What? Yeah. What was about that? Because I I feel like you're. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you already have a contract with somebody, you're not allowed to be on it because they is if you win, they give you the contract, right? Technically, you're correct. Yeah, you so have to be an you have to be an unsigned artist to a certain degree. Like if you're on an indie label or something like that, I think there's a little bit of flexibility, but you can't be on a major. Right. Mm -hmm. So you weren't on the major that. And then at, and, at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. So then, what was that experience like? Like, did that? I obviously that was at the beginning of when internet videos started really taking off. Is was it kind of like the right thing at the right time? It made sense to me because after doing several years of eight shows a week and not generating content, I had to go back to doing my own music, and I felt that. I was willing to step up to the plate and play the game of TV. 
as reality as that can be. Real, and I put reality in quotes because although you know the 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 chair turning and that sort of thing is very legit, uh, it really is. Um, the the interviews and the angling and the posturing and, and how they move contestants around and everything is very articulated. It's it's not as real. It's just like anything. It's reality TV. Really, isn't reality TV. Right. It's right. very very scripted. Um, but I was willing to play ball and go. I need to get because at that point I had been involved with musical theater professionally for a, for a decade. And I wanted to return to doing music full time. And I felt that that was the option that made the best sense to me. Because it was, it was the, I mean, pardon me, it was, it was my voice that moved, or it was people's voices. So it, there had to be some sort of authenticity of, of why these people would turn their chairs around. Um, but it, it, Anyway, it's it's ironic that they chose to, to tell my theater story on there when I thought that that was they were going to tell talk about making records, which is what I was really impassioned about to return to. You know, um, I would makes do sense it. To me. It makes sense to me. I would rather see somebody who came who was a struggling theater artist succeed versus somebody who was. I, I don't know. It seems to me like if they plugged the other angle of being a recording artist, then it just would have been a little too cliche of like, I'm just here to continue my recording artist career. Yeah, I just wanted to return to it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I just, I would do it again. I think, you know, people ask me that again. How was the experience? Well, the 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 problem that I personally had, if I can be real vocal about it, was that my guy was CeeLo Green, CeeLo turned his chair around and we actually became very fast friends because I'd had two major label record deals at that point when I, before I went on the show and we had both worked with so many of the same people in our careers that it was like, we both knew that I'm not going to learn anything from him. He isn't going to teach me anything. Let's just hang out and have a glass of wine. I mean, that's kind of what the, that's kind of what the relationship turned into and that doesn't make for good TV. And the producers right. on the show, pull, I mean, they had to pull us both aside. And they, they had to pull CeeLo and like, you can't talk to Tony Vincent that way, man. So, so me, me and CeeLo and Babyface are just kind of shooting the shit. And that's not what you... I mean, they want to see singers or contestants or whatever that thing you want to call them to, really, to be starry-eyed and very impressionable and... That they're, li- that, that, they're, yes, exactly, that they're living yeah. their dream and that everything is, you know, roses and cherries and smells so good. And when I was just like, dude, I've been through this. I've been through some really bad contracts, you know, and had great experiences and yada, 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 whatever. Uh, and it just, that's not the story that the voice wanted to tell. So, no, no, it, it's, it's been, it's been fun. I've noticed, I've known a couple other reality show contestants. And um, I mean, so many people too have come out of So You Think You Can Dance who have made it into the Broadway scene. And then, yeah. Um, then they actually, realize that, wow, this is hard eight times a week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lauren, Lauren Lott uh, from Once on This Island, she, mm-hmm. she did American Idol. And, and there was been one or two others that I've interviewed from Idol. But like Lauren was very, very, very honest. And she's like, the stress of that show made her lose her hair. She, had to, she started wearing wigs. 
after that show because it was just so much well, that's, pressure. That's, yeah, that's why I went on the voice and shaved my head. Oh, really? So, so I wouldn't lose my hair. <laughs> no, I'm just, no, I'm just no, kidding. No, no, no. No, like you, know, you had hair when we recorded Bleeding Love. I did, but I, but during the voice, I actually did. I was bald. Yeah. I shaved my head, yeah. I remember. I remember from the videos, yeah. yeah. I probably watched you, actually. I watched a lot of those early seasons, like off and on. Because, but that was my, my busy college time, so I was... Wait, was it? No. I don't know. No. No, no, no. That was my move to New York time. Where, where from? North Carolina. Where? Uh, Raleigh. Great city. Great city. Out of the moment, but yes, well, in general. Yeah, yes. Yeah. In general. <laughs> All right. In general. Uh, in general. Yeah, okay. Edit, so Edit. <laughs> All right, so we'll wrap up here with three standard closing questions I ask everybody. Uh, the first one is very simply, what motivates you? Two things. Um, I love music to a deep, deep level, and I cannot not do it. Um, and my kids. I have a, I have a son too that, that that's two years old, and and uh, I adore both of my kids. But there's something about my son that I've had eight years with my daughter, but he's still quite new. He's two years old, and it's just, he has my soul in his hand and it just, it moves me every single day. You know? That there's nothing like it. No. No, I've got, uh, you saw the run in before we started recording. My, my five and a half year old and my almost four year old, they're, they're both happy wrapped around their finger. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. It is crazy. crazy. All right, so what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Oh, goodness. Soak up everything around you. Learn from what's happening around you. Before you make a judgment, understand what you're saying yes or no to. Vet whatever opportunities come with a real sort of sober head instead of picking and choosing what you will and won't do. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it does. Okay. And then the final question, hardest one, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? American Idiot. Probably so. <laughs> with, with you in it? Maybe. I don't know. The fact that that, I mean, it's also only 90 minutes and one act. I could see 90 minutes, one act habitually. I don't know if I could sit through two acts of anything. Lame frankly. Is, oh, night after night would probably... That would drive me to the bridge. Head. Yeah, that'd take me to the bridge. Um, <laughs> I think so. Not Just because, I mean, I just, I love rock and roll. I love aggressive drums. I love aggressive guitars. And there has never been a show that replicates it better. Zero. None. I'm sorry. Well, everything, should, is, everything has been too safe. You should bring it back. Do a revival. I'll talk to Billy Joe. Yeah, talk to the guys. Mm. All right, so where can we find you on social media? Um, my name, Tony Vincent, at my website, um, tonyvincent.com. Um, I don't know what my Instagram 
handle is or my Twitter handle or Facebook. But yeah, I mean, just Google me. And... <laughs> <laughs> you just don't see it. You don't know what it is. No, I really don't know. What it is. <laughs> I really don't know what it is. I think right. my I think my Instagram is the official Tony Vincent. I think. All right. Well, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay, anyway, brilliant. So awesome. We'll figure it out. Okay. You get more of me at the theaterpodcast.com. Show your support at the theaterpodcast.com slash Patreon. Find me online on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. Please leave a rating, leave a review. Everywhere you're listening, this is edited by Matthew Hintershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Tony Vincent, thank you most of all. This has been such a different conversation. I really like this. Alan, I'm really glad to be here. Really. Thanks. For, I'm sorry if we took too much of a left turn but uh no 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 not at all this is i told you it, it can go wherever it needs to go and good. it needed it went exactly where it needed to go i really excellent. enjoyed it excellent so did i i'm glad to be here thank you take a deep breath make the world a little colorful Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.